Welcome to the My Psychology Podcast. Thanks for joining us. My name is Andy Pomerantz, and I'm a psychology professor at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville. I also happen to be the author of the My Psychology textbook from Macmillan Learning. In each episode of this podcast, instructors from various colleges and universities join me to talk about the most important and most interesting parts of the chapter to help you understand and appreciate them. As we do, we will share some stories about our own experiences with concepts from the chapter from inside or outside of the classroom. So for this episode, uh, today on chapter 13, the chapter on social psychology, I am joined by Dr. Ava Selly, who is a principal lecturer in the Department of Psychology at Arizona State University. Hi, Ava. Hi, Andy. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for being with us. Absolutely. And also by Dr. David Tom, who is an associate professor of psychology at Columbus State Community College and a senior lecturer in the Department of Psychology at The Ohio State University. Hi, David. Hi, Andy. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me today. Really, really glad to be able to be part of this uh, podcast. All right. So here's a quick summary of Chapter 13, Social Psychology. The first section is on social cognition, or how we think about each other, and includes topics like attribution, attitudes, and cognitive dissonance. The next section is on social influence, and it touches on ideas like conformity, obedience, including the classic studies by Stanley Milgram, social facilitation, groupthink, and group polarization. The next section on social relations includes first impressions, prejudice, stereotypes, and discrimination, in-groups and out-groups, aggression, and attraction. And the final section, pro-social behavior, focuses on how we help each other, including theories of why we do and don't behave altruistically. So chapter 13, social psychology, there are so many interesting topics in this chapter. Where do you want to start? All right, well, I'll jump in. This is my favorite chapter. And I think that it's my favorite chapter because it is by far the easiest to relate to students' lives. And students often get into psychology thinking that it's going to help them understand themselves, but they're thinking about clinical psychology and personality psychology, yet I think some of the most valuable insights come from social psychology because it's really about how we interact with other people and to try to understand ourselves when we're around other people and how we influence one other people, other people, how, um, you know, how they impact us. This is some of the most interesting stuff out there. And I'll take it one step further, which is that I found as a clinical psychologist that so much of what I do in clinical psychology actually is informed by social psychology, you know, trying to help clients understand you know, how they impact other people, how they can interpret other people's actions and what those those things mean. So it's just a really sort of wonderful topic. And I really strongly encourage students, even if they don't go on to be majors, to not only pay particular attention in this chapter, but also perhaps take a social psychology course and delve deeper into the topics that we're going to just barely graze upon today. I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think in terms of different chapters that benefit students, uh, particularly with where they are in terms of understanding themselves and understanding why they do what they do, this is a great chapter for them because I think it's very 
natural for them to think that people do things because of, you know, what is inside of them. You know, I often describe this chapter to my students as the other side of personality psychology. Absolutely. It's great for them to kind of realize the power that others have on their behavior, even when they're not necessarily aware of it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, to, to sort of dive right into to some of the concepts, I mean, I talk about the fundamental attribution error as possibly the single most important thing that they'll learn in terms of getting along with other people. Behavior, you know, we talk about early in the... Um, Early in the course, we talk about psychology being the science of behavior and mental processes, right? So the difference between behavior and mental processes, mental processes being primarily our thoughts and feelings, is that behaviors are observable, right? They're measurable. So when we look at other people, typically all we see in them is their behavior. That's the one thing that's observable. What we don't see is their thoughts and feelings. And essentially the fundamental attribution error is just an application of that principle saying, hey, when we look at people and we see their behavior, we tend to judge them on their behavior. We, pres we then presume that their mental processes, their thoughts and feelings are reflected in that behavior. And we overlook the impact of their situation, their circumstances, their environment, and how they're processing it inside. So when I walk down the street and some, you know, I say hello to somebody that I know well and they don't say hello back, you know, how I explain, you know, attribution is just a fancy word for explanation, right? So how I attribute their behavior, how I explain their behavior really is important. Do I think, oh, maybe they didn't hear me? Or do I think like, oh, they're being rude to me. They intentionally ignored what I was saying. Or maybe something happened. Maybe they're distressed and they're preoccupied with something. I can't see what they're thinking and feeling. And so there's this tremendous danger in our lives and just presuming that people are their behaviors. And that really is what the fundamental attribution error is about. And it accounts for, you know, I tend to exaggerate this a little bit, but I think it accounts for like 90% of interpersonal conflict. This problem that we have is that we don't take the time to, you know, to figure out why people are doing what they're doing, because it's just easier to presume everybody's doing it because they intend to do it. And that's why when we know people better, or, you know, our friends, our family, they get more latitude, you know, we're much more likely uh, not to make those presumptions, because we know them better. And we know a little bit more about what's going on behind the scenes. Ab absolutely. In fact, uh, that was probably my, th actually it was, the fundamental attribution error was my number one concept as well um, out of the chapter. Uh, and just seeing how it plays itself out in terms of how people make judgments about others. And as you said, I think explanation is just a great way of simplifying what an attribution really is. Um, and it can lead to some pretty other horrible ideas that uh, are also covered, um, such as uh, blaming the victim. So, right, what ends right. up happening is when you, you know, the fundamental attribution error would predict that if a person is in a bad situation, we immediately think to kind of dispositional reasons for why that's come about. And that, that can be very dangerous. Right. Wouldn't surprise me if, uh, if a really high percentage of conflict could be reduced with a better yep. understanding of how people understand the causes of others' behavior. 
Absolutely. And, you know, I had mentioned the applications of social psych principles in clinical psych. A lot of the work that I did was, um, was couples therapy. And yes, <laughs> and fundamental attribution error is just, you know, I, I would label it as such. I would teach, you know, couples this construct and say, hey, how do you think this plays out in your relationship? Because let me tell you something, you know, when we, when we get into conflict in our relationships, this starts skyrocketing. This error, we, we, <laughs> We not only av don't avoid fundamental attribution error, we just use it more and we wield it like a sword against people, you know, like, well, but, but you did this right. and you said this without saying, well, well, wait a minute, but why? What was the context? What's happening? Where we insist that people understand, you know, understand, well, that's not what I meant. Right. And then there's this question of like, well, what did you intend and what were the consequences and the difference between what you intended and the consequences of what you did really has to do with the fundamental attribution error being applied by the receiver because they're not looking at your intent. They're just looking at the outcome. That's right. Yeah, it's a, it's a great it's a great uh, application in that, in that clinical setting. As a clinical psychologist myself, who's worked with some couples, I've seen it too, and it's often mutual. In other words, it's going in both. It's going. It, there's fundamental attribution errors going in both directions. Right. Exactly. From from one person in the couple to the other. The fundamental attribution error occurs because we presume we know things we have no way of knowing. And that getting to know people and getting to understand people may involve asking them, you know, what's happening, asking what's, you know, being willing to learn more about the person's situation and circumstances and environment so that you can understand the dynamics that lead to a particular behavior and not to judge them just on the behavior itself. Right. Yeah. And one, I'll add one more note about the fundamental attribution error before we, we shift to some another fascinating topic from, from this chapter. But I, I am so struck by the fact that the people who came up with this concept, who popularized this concept, named it an error. They named it the fundamental attribution error. They didn't name it. They could have named it anything. They could have named it, for example, the fundamental attribution tendency, that people tend to do that. With the implication that it might be right, it might be wrong, you know, like there's, it's not inherent in, in that name that it's wrong. They actually named it with the word error in it to make it clear, like when you do this, when you, when you overestimate the importance of, of, the, of traits and underestimate the importance of the situation ex when you're explaining the behavior of other people, that is a mistake. That is a mistake. And I'm, I'm, I'm just struck by that. You don't see uh, terms defined in the field of psychology with that kind of that kind of judgment. So what else from chapter 13? What are some other uh, 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 interesting topics that you wanted to, to cover? I think probably the second one, uh, if, if I might jump in, is just the general concept of attitude. The general concept mm -hmm. of attitude and all of the related concepts of persuasion. And I think the whole idea of attitude came front and central for me when, when I asked my students to really reflect on all of the different ways in which people try to change their attitudes. You know, who has a stake in trying to change your attitudes about anything, right? And the list right. goes on and on, right? Marketers, lobbyists, educators, salespeople. And we have this kind of... Their friends? Yeah, their friends, their parents, their <laughs> relatives, right? right? And uh -huh. the list of who tries to persuade us and change our attitudes is never ending. Right. And 
I think that's always been the case. I think one of the things that's happened fairly recently has been the extent to which we understand how people may be nefariously trying to change our attitudes through persuasion. You know, a lot came up, probably the very contential uh, election of 2016 and the realization that that there are foreign powers who flood our social media with attempts to change our attitudes in one direction or another has put us on high alert. This was kind of a clarion call to how do we protect our attitudes or how do we prevent that type of influence that we consider you know, not positive influence. Right. And that's, you know, the particular, the persuasion section, and I teach interpersonal influence, which is basically a a persuasion course. The, The importance of understanding persuasion is both about learning persuasive skills and also in recognizing when those persuasive skills are being wielded against us so that we can make decisions about whether, you know, it's not that being persuaded is bad. It's that we want to make sure that the types of persuasion that are happening to us are ones that we are processing more, you know, there's the distinction between central and peripheral routes, for example, that we're not making superficial decisions or these knee-jerk types of decisions that we really get to choose the behaviors that follow from the attitudes that have changed. Yeah, and and David, I really like how when how you're, you when you present this to students, you um you cast the students in the receiving role. In other words, they're on the receiving end of an attitude persuasion technique. I think oftentimes when when students read these chapters, they cast themselves as the ones doing the attitude persuasion right. of someone else. <laughs> Absolutely, and they're both they're both rel- we, we we all do both of those things. Right. I mean, obviously, all of us, all of our students, all of anybody is 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 involved on on both ends of the of the interaction. Right. But there's something so immediately personally relevant about about noticing yourself on the receiving end. Like, when do other people try to do this to me? Um, right. You might be able to sort of discount, you know, maybe I, I if you're if you're talking about the, the one on the acting end, like the one doing the attitude persuasion, you might be able to say, well, I really don't do that one very much or that one doesn't really occur to me very often. But when we think of ourselves on the receiving end, we can think of all kinds of advertisers and salespeople and friends and family who do all kind all these things to us all the time. And it makes it so, so immediate. Actually, a lot of the concepts in this chapter, like. For example, fundamental attribution error that we were talking about before, it's it's it, I think it's beneficial for students to to perceive themselves in the on the receiving end there too. Like when has the fundamental attribution error been been committed against you? When have you felt the mm-hmm. somebody else doing it to you? Because again, I think that can help students sort of recognize how relevant this stuff is in, in their in their real lives. Absolutely, absolutely. Right. So again, I, I hope that in all these concepts, all the social psych concepts. I hope students can see themselves on 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 all sides of the uh, of the interaction. Let's take a quick break here, and when we come back, we'll continue our discussion of Chapter Thirteen, Social Psychology. 
The My Psychology Podcast is brought to you by Launchpad from Macmillan Learning. When I wrote My Psychology, I wanted students to maximize their connection to the science of psychology, and Launchpad does just that. It's the one place where you can find the full ebook of My Psychology, features like My Take videos, chapter apps, and show me more links, and Macmillan's full library of resources, including videos, flashcards, concept practice activities, and more. Best of all, Launchpad includes the Learning Curve Adaptive Quizzing System, designed based on cognitive research to improve your learning and help you retain information over time. In addition, the Learning Curve algorithm chooses questions based on your performance, delivering a quiz that is unique to you. If you aren't using Launchpad already, you can sign up for a free trial right now. That's right, you can get 21 days of free access right now by visiting launchpadworks.com and searching for my psychology that's launchpadworks.com sign up now for your 21 days of free access and start studying with the learning curve adaptive quizzing system welcome back we are here discussing chapter 13 social psychology from the my psychology textbook i'm andy pomerantz i'm a professor of psychology at southern illinois university edwardsville and author of the my psychology textbook with me today are Dr. David Tom, Associate Professor of Psychology at Columbus State Community College and Senior Lecturer in the Department of Psychology at The Ohio State University, and Dr. Ava Selly, Principal Lecturer in the Department of Psychology at Arizona State University. Okay, what else from Chapter 13? What are some other concepts that we wanted to highlight for students? So um, anything that has to do with groups, for example, I you know, I, I really talk a lot about uh, in terms of how groups make decisions, how they interact with one another. You know, there's a sort of fun little meme. It's a little image of, you know, what do group projects tell you, you know, teach you and sort of the, the entire, you know, there's several several different things in the key on the side, but really the entire the entire pie is trust no one, you know, and you know, what, what, why is that? And students almost immediately relate to that. You know, how many people enjoy group projects and suddenly you hear groans from the student? Well, why is that? You know, and it, you can just, it's so easy to, to dissect that apart and say, okay, well, it's because we're human beings and different human beings deal with these things differently. And there are sort of different types of roles that people have. And some of those roles exhibit some social psych concepts like social loafing, for example. Um, you know, people that in a group, hey, this is great, a group project, let somebody else do it. And then of course, you know, your best students are like, yeah, we can't stand those people. You know, they just do nothing. And, you know, and well, what do you do? Oh, well, I'm doing all the work. Well, how, you know, how, how is that dynamic working? And to really sort of try to understand what happens when groups get together or, you know, have you ever been on a committee and, you know, people are making decisions and uh, you're not quite sure they're going the right way. Do you speak up or not? And if not, why not? And was there a particularly strong leader? And did everybody seem pretty unanimous to you? And did you just think that like, oh, bringing things up was just going to throw a wrench in things and you kind of wanted to get out of there? Well, group thing is based, you know, group think is based on some of those problems. And it's one thing if you're on a committee to plan a party, it's a whole nother thing if you're on a committee that's, you know, a political committee or a governing committee in some organization, or what if you're on a jury? 
Uh, because of my psych and law background, I tend to bring a lot of the psych and law stuff in here. And we worry about jury decision making as far as some of these uh, group dynamics are concerned. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think there are a lot of arenas where group polarization can also proliferate nowadays. Um, and it is, I, I think it's critically stu- important for students to understand how, you know, like, the, you know, the very essence of groupthink, you can have a whole bunch of very, very smart people in a room making it, you know, attempting to make a decision and be quite surprised by just how badly that decision ends up being because of these different forces, having a strong leader, having a, a push for unanimity, uh, you know, quashing dissent. And all of that is, uh, it can happen to people who you would not necessarily expect to, uh, to succumb to those types of uh, forces that lead to bad decision-making. Absolutely. I think that's completely true. I think students recognize it as true as well. A lot of times when I teach this material, it's, it seems like I'm, I'm just putting uh, labels, giving them terms for experiences they've, they've had and they can, and they can recognize. But you know, one of the questions that I like to ask after, after we talk about all these, and we're talking about concepts like social facilitation, social loafing, groupthink, group polarization, uh, those kinds of things. I like to ask the question, how big does the group have to be for these things to happen? Because usually I think when we, because we're using the word group, people are thinking, well, it's, I don't know, half a dozen people, a dozen people, a few dozen people, like pretty large numbers. I would make the argument that, and this is just me, it is my opinion, but I, I would make the argument that in many cases, this can happen in a couple. This can happen in two, in, in, a, in a couple, whether, whether it's a romantic couple or just, a, a, you know, two friends or two coworkers, or it can happen in a group, quote unquote, of two people where there's, um, you know, the, the, like, for example, the groupthink phenomenon where you're more concerned with sort of keeping the peace with the other members of the group right. Right. than with coming up with a good decision. I think that happens all the time when there are just two people making a decision. I think research has shown it to peak at around five or six individuals. But like with group polarization, if you have two people who are moderate on an idea and they just hear each other go back and forth, they can become very extreme very quickly. And it's just right. two people, just two people. That's right. And that could be, it could be on any topic. It can be on some political topic. It can be on, you know, two people who are sort of moderate fans of the same TV show right. or something. Right. What else from chapter 13? What are some other interesting topics that you guys wanted to bring up? Well, there's, when we talk about conformity and obedience, um, I talk about the similarities between these two constructs. Um, in a, I mean, obviously comparing and contrasting them in terms of, you know, authority being an issue when it comes to obedience. But, but when we look at the studies on conformity and obedience, what, one of the th- I, I tend to get a little negative, I guess, um, to point something out to students because to, students tend to be very surprised when we talk about Ash and, you know, the line study in conformity, and we talk about Milgram, you know, the obedient, classic obedience study, uh, students tend to be very surprised, you know, about the extent of the conformity, the extent of the obedience. And of course, there's a lot of like, well, yeah, I wouldn't do that kind of thing. And I tell students, well, you know, the research suggests that you would, 
And in fact, it's actually worse than you think it is. In other words, remember, I, I point something out to them that really sort of gives students a, a, an opportunity to do a double take, which is those studies were generally done among strangers. Those people never knew each other and would never meet again. Yet we still had such high levels of conformity and obedience, shockingly high to some extent. And then I sort of, you know, in the context of Milgram, talk about the pun of you know, <laughs> things being shockingly high. But, right. um, but it's actually worse, not only than we would predict in ourselves that we actually do conform and we do obey, even though we don't think we're going to, but it's actually the whole phenomena are worse than they seem in the research because what happens when it's not strangers what happens when it's it's not strangers who are unanimous on an incorrect evaluation of the environment in the case of conformity or what happens when it's not a stranger telling you what to do. Because I asked them, you know, we see the researcher as an authority figure in the Milgram study. What actual power did that researcher have over the participants in that study? And the reality is not a whole lot. You know, there was not, you know, what if that were your actual boss? What if that was your commanding officer? What if it's someone who actually does have some power over you? What if the, the conformity is to your friends? What you see there is that the probability of conforming obedience are actually probably higher than those studies suggest. And that sort of, you know, I, I try to, I, you know, try to then backtrack and say, you know, why is it then important that we understand these things? Again, not because we don't want to conform or don't want to obey, but because we want to make decisions about where we will conform and where we will obey and not do those things in knee-jerk reactions. But, you know, really to, to make that point, I first make the point that these are very real forces and probably even more intense than the research suggests. I think that's a wonderful point because, as you mentioned, in most real-life situations where conformity or obedience of consequence would happen, it's likely to be with people who have higher power because you're going to see them again or they're friends of yours or acquaintances or even family members. And whatever the research is with the strangers could ostensibly be taken as kind of a low baseline for what people actually would do in real life conformity or obedience situations, which is kind of a scary thought. It is a scary thought. It is a scary thought. It is a scary thought. I'm thinking about the conformity studies in particular, the, the ASH studies. In the book, students will find the, the description of the, 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 the ASH studies themselves and a little picture of the lines that the, that the participants looked at. Um, and, and, you know, that, that study, in that study, um, and in many others like it, there's, there's a factual answer to what's right and what's wrong. You know, one of those lines is, this, is the same length as the others, or is closer in length to the others. And so there is a clear-cut, factual, right answer to that question. Um, but at least one of the examples in the book kind of strays a little bit from factual rightness and starts to at least delve into a little bit the the idea of of rightness defined in some other ways like what is morally right what is ethically right what is and i i often wonder 
when 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 we are feeling that pressure to conform, when they're when we're out in our real lives doing doing whatever we're doing, and there are people pressuring us to conform, sometimes it's not a factual mistake that we're being pressured to to conform to. Sometimes it's a moral mistake, or maybe if if, if mistake is too strong of a word, at least it's morally questionable or ethically questionable, or um, you know questionable questionable in some other way. And I. Um, I, I think I think the implications of Ash's studies are, go beyond just the factual. This is not just like, you know, if somebody else says two plus two is five, you might you might consider for a moment that maybe two plus two is five, and maybe you'd even agree with it. It's not just it's not just facts. It's it's judgment, which can be factual or based on fact or based on all kinds of other ways of thinking. But even when it comes to facts, I make the point that we think, well, yeah, we're going to be less susceptible to this effect when they're, you know, I mean, and that's why Ash is is supposed to be striking, right? Because there is a factual answer. But that's the point that there's a situation where it's it's not really informational, you know, conform. It's not like, oh, I I don't know the right answer. No, you're right. They're making a choice. Mm -hmm. Right. But- But even when we know the answer, we somehow, there's something that happens in our minds, you know, because the the presumption of, you know, normative influence is, oh, well, I'm going to give the same answer as everybody else just to fit in, right? But I explained to students that that's not all that's going on in Ash, because you know, why do you care whether you fit into these people, with these people? It's not, that's not a really dominant force necessarily. There is this concern about going against the majority, which is a real, you know, real issue. But I also suggest that there may be another element, which is when we see other people making judgments that disagree with ours, that are in conflict with ours, we actually doubt our own perceptions. We doubt our own facts. You know, we're actually willing to go, maybe, maybe I didn't understand the instructions. Maybe, maybe, maybe they know something I don't know. Even when it seems obvious what the answer is, we have a tendency to talk ourselves out of facts. We have the ability to go, yeah, maybe, maybe I didn't get this. Mm-hmm. And that's when there is a factual answer, and I, I would imagine it's even it's even a slip a more slippery slope exactly. when the, when the when it's when it's unclear what the right answer exactly. is. Oh yeah, yeah. All of that conformity just ratchets up a whole other level. Definitely, yep. definitely. So, is there another topic from chapter thirteen that you wanted to highlight? Yeah, I, I think probably one of the other topics that is a uh, central area. Um, within the social psychology chapter is stereotyping and prejudice. Uh, stereotyping and prejudice is something that, my gosh, it has it's been on the front page of newspapers, and we've been hearing about it constantly in the news media in this kind of battle for trying to culturally understand as a nation what exactly is discrimination, what is stereotyping, is it always bad, are some stereotypes correct? What am I allowed to say? What am I not allowed to say? And it's created a lot of uncertainty, I think, in the in the area of how, well, how do we interact with people who may be different from us in some uh, in some meaningful way? Yep, absolutely. And and to sort of break this down to try to understand it, you know, I really 
the word prejudice, everybody knows that it has negative connotations, but I think, you know, I really emphasize that it's really important to also consider it a very sort of human response, you know, that we all do it to some extent and to really try to understand it. So this idea, you know, people saying I'm not prejudiced is just a ridiculous statement. You know, we, this is something that, that we all engage in. We prejudge people. We, you know, we presume things about them based on their membership in certain groups. Um, some of that information may have some basis in reality. Some, some of it is yet again, another form of a fundamental attribution error, another application of that construct there. And then right. really trying to break this down. And, you know, our, I, I try to pull it into that early definition again that we gave students at the beginning of the semester about psychology as the science of behavior and mental processes and the mental processes being thoughts and feelings. So if we look at those three things, you know, thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, it's, it sort of helps us understand prejudice a little bit where, you know, the cognitive or thought-based elements or the stereotypes, the things that we believe about people who belong to certain groups, you know, then exploring the feelings that go with it. Usually the feelings that underlie prejudice are, are you know, hatred is the ob obvious one that we see, but, you know, or that we think of, but fear. Often it's, it's some form of fear. Um, and then the behavioral manifestation of prejudice is discrimination. You know, those behaviors that treat different people in different ways, according to the stereotypes that we, you know, that we um, hold of them. And so to think about prejudice having all of these three different elements, because attitudes have all three of these elements and right. prejudice exactly essentially right. is an attitude. Right. Um, I think, right. it, it, you know, just really emphasizing how important it is to understand prejudice as a concept, but also our own prejudices. You know, what are the things that right. impact and that defensiveness about prejudice doesn't help, <laughs> you know, that, that sort of knee jerk reaction of like, oh no, that's, you know, that's not something that I do or that I feel is not generally particularly helpful. And, and I think that that goes hand in hand with one of the other challenges that I've seen in the classroom. I, I think when I teach this, one of the first things I say is we're not going to label, you know, in a discussion of these concepts, we're not going to label anybody a misogynist, a racist, a bigot, or anything like that. And it's not to deny that those things may exist, but they inevitably have the effect on a discussion of shutting down the discussion. And students, right, and as you were mentioning, one of the points I think we'd all like to get our students to is the realization that we may all have some biases of which we're unaware. And that doesn't make us evil, right? It doesn't make us bad. And I think people are very- Makes us human. Reticent, exactly. People in general, because of social desirability, are very reticent to admit to perhaps holding any of these biases. So they, you know, they say, no, no, I, I don't, you know, oh, not me. That's not me. And I think that's one of the things that's most challenging to really getting students to understand how pervasive and how, how you know, really normal it is to have some sort of, you know, it's 
really just a variation of schema-based processing that we all have. It's more efficient. We're cognitive misers. We stereotype. That's who we are as humans. But that's not the end of the story, right? There's a lot more to it after that in terms of the application of stereotypes, whether we expose ourselves to media and material that may you know, increase the likelihood of having these associations? Or do we seek out environments where, you know, we actively seek out uh, environments that don't reinforce some of the stereotypes that we may be trying to, to lessen uh, within, our, within our conceptual network? Definitely, definitely. Okay, so big thanks to my guests on this episode of the podcast, which covered chapter 13, social psychology. Uh, Dr. Ava Selly, she's a principal lecturer in the Department of Psychology at Arizona State University, and Dr. David Tom, an associate professor of psychology at Columbus State Community College and a senior lecturer in the Department of Psychology at The Ohio State University. And thanks to all of you for listening. We hope this podcast helps you learn and appreciate the material in this chapter. Of course, you should check with your own instructor to see what's most important in your own class. And for more resources for studying this chapter, check out Launchpad at launchpadworks.com. Talk to you again soon.